Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. Sarah Pascoe is a critically acclaimed comedian, writer and actor. She's the star of the BBC stand-up special Lads, 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 the writer and lead of sitcom Out of Her Mind, the presenter of The Great British Sewing Bee and the Sunday Times best-selling author of two works of non-fiction, Animal and Sex Power Money. She's currently midway through her latest tour called, aptly enough for this podcast, Success. She grew up in Essex and East London, one of three sisters raised by a single mother. Initially, she had aspirations to be an actor before realising stand-up was more her thing. But she's never been one to limit herself to a single talent. Her debut novel, Weirdo, is out tomorrow and is a dark, funny, stream-of-consciousness narrative ride through the internal machinations of Sophie, an anxious, sometimes obsessive, often unhappy woman trying to feel less lost. I gobbled it up. Pasco was once asked the best piece of advice anyone ever gave her and replied with something her dad had said when she was toying with the idea of a teacher training course as a backup plan. Make it work or starve to death. He essentially said, if you have a backup plan, it's far less likely that you'll get to do what you want to do, Pasco recalled. My mum hated it. Sarah Pascoe, welcome to How to Fail. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for having me. My mum hated that advice because my dad's a jazz musician who lives in Australia who doesn't have any money, which is fine. So I wouldn't be the, he wouldn't be the one like lending me money for rent when, <laughs> instead of me starving to death. <laughs> it, was such, it was such jazz musician advice. Like, what's the point of being alive yeah. unless you're doing what you love? But the best yeah. piece of advice that anyone ever gave you still. So do you think? Yeah, because well, there was a sense of it wasn't building me up. It wasn't you are special or the world needs you. It was nothing like that. It was like, what do you want? Mm. Well, then get that then. Yeah. And there was something very refreshing about that. Neither of my parents are very, I want to say interested, but what I mean is involved. Mm. And there's a real freedom to that. I think you can have much more supportive parents where you feel responsible for their disappointment in your career or feel too viewed or their opinion sways. There was something really lovely about my mum going, my mum saying, I just don't know how to lend you any money. And my dad saying, we'll do it then. Does it make it easier when you are a confessional comic to have a family that's less interventionist? It became more difficult when I was on TV. It was fine when no one knew what I was saying about them. And then the minute it became, well, actually radio first and then TV, it then became, oh, of course, I think that's why I'm obsessed with personal narratives because stand-up is your version of events and you think it's the truth and then other people hear it and they're so like, what? Yeah. That's how you saw me in that role or that's how you felt that. And so then, there's, then it's become a little bit more difficult to traverse. Both of my parents say you can say whatever you like and then I'm upset when I say things. And what about your sisters? Because so oh. often with siblings, they have a completely different experience of your family. Yes. yes. My sisters, I only on stage ever talk about one sister, so that they both have deniability. I'm planning <laughs> to do the same with my children. Because Is that why you're having a second child? It's exactly yeah. why. <laughs> also, so that I also think having siblings 
Do you have siblings? Yes, yes. I've got one older sister. Yeah. No one else will ever really believe how mad your parents are. It does need to be someone else who was there. Yeah. You describe it to someone else and they go, this sounds nice. And, okay. <laughs> I think there's, that's not why everyone should have, I know, I'm not saying this to prescribe families, but I felt it's really great to have someone who just has shorthand yeah. into your family past. But yeah, deniability on stage. My sisters both have quite professional jobs. One of them's a, she teaches GCSE English and one of them is a dental nurse. So they do not want me talking about what they did at school. GCSE <laughs> English. Wow, I imagine yeah. her students think it's very cool that you're her sister. No, I think all of her students, I think she's much, much cooler than me. And she's quite sort of like beautiful. I think that they think she's the cool one. Also, the thing with comedy is, you know, and this happens with most comedians, you'd be like, oh, so-and-so in my family. And then what you get is lots of people going, I watched her YouTube, not funny. <laughs> and, then they, and then they tell you that helpfully. <laughs> yeah. um, let's talk about Weirdo, because I loved it. Thank you. And thank you for reading it. Oh my gosh, yeah. it was a pleasure. And it's always so refreshing and also a relief to discover that a person very talented in one area can also write. They're not just like knocking out a book because they've got a book deal because they're famous. Yeah. There's a thing with stand-ups, myself and Mark Watson sometimes bitch about comics who have books as merch. Because when you love books yes. and you respect books, it's books because of books, you know, that's the main thing. It's not just, oh, and then I've got something to sign after shows or something like that. Yeah. I had this very precocious career plan that involved 40s novelists. And then I got to my 40s and then I had to actually work out if I could write a book. And I knew I could write a length of a book because I'd written nonfiction, but I had no idea. I told myself it would be just be like writing a story at school and you write a little bit and then you write a little bit and then the characters start doing things for themselves in that mad way. You know, when yeah. you go, oh, I didn't plan this. <laughs> but apparently that's what this scene is doing. And I also, because I've written before, at least I knew that the editing process, you can write, as long as you get something finished, you can make it so much better mm-hmm. later. But it was a bit like, what am I going to do for this decade then? <laughs> if I discover, oh, because also novelists, the only people I get starstruck about, I mean, spending time in someone's mind or the world that they've created, it's really huge. And I think mm-hmm. if it had been rubbish... If I'd got to the end, then I'd have gone, what a lovely experiment. Thank you, Faber. Obviously, we won't show anyone. I mean, you've nailed it. And I think I've already said to you, I can't wait to see what you write next, having read this. And I was interested by the publisher's blurb because they Mm. went big on the fact that it's funny. And it is Mm. funny. And obviously, you're very funny. But I think it's there's a darkness Mm. to it that I found so resonated and was so immersive because you really do plummet into Sophie's mind and it's not always a comfortable place to be because she's actually struggling with past trauma a sense of alienation and what I think you do brilliantly is the structure I want to know how much you did actually plan it because it's fragmentary in nature so you're sort of headlong in her being in a pub and her long-term crush walks in and then suddenly you get a flash of something that's happened in the past and you weave it together so well it is like a mind work. So yes. I suppose that's what I'm getting yes. at yeah so I started from a really pretentious place when I first started to write I used to do like playwriting courses after university and they always said, you're trying so hard to be clever that, you know, your work is unreadable. <laughs> it was always that. I remember I've got, I mean, awful, awful, awful plays still in my, you know, computer, which are 
sort of, <laughs> I guess, sort of motifs of the vagina. The whole thing happens in a cupboard Love. and it's so yeah. Freudian. <laughs> and that all of the characters are parts of one person's id super... Like, that was the kind of thing I was working at. With this, I knew I'm obsessed with unreliable narrators. Yeah, so am I. I I'm obsessed with them. I think they make you feel engaged and clever and like a detective exactly. and and that's how it feels actually meeting other people isn't it sort of you're telling me this but I'm also picking up this and mm. that's why gossip is so fantastic mm. because that's essentially what you're doing is unpicking so I knew I wanted to write an unreliable narrator I wanted her to think things about her life that the reader knew weren't true and I knew I wanted to put things in there where the reader goes well did that happen or not because this other character is saying that it didn't and I knew from stand-up that there's nothing more and I mean, from watching stand-up, from stand-up that I love, there's nothing more satisfying than a callback, like just to the human mind, to like, yeah. you talked about this earlier, and now I'm getting a bit more information about it. So I did have to keep a few strands working, but no, I didn't have a proper plan. I never write with a proper plan either, yeah. and I love it when I meet other writers who yes. <laughs> refuse the post-it note. I was reading someone, and essentially they were saying, you plan, oh, I'll tell you who it is, Patricia Highsmith has written a book a very short book about plotting thrillers. And she says she always knows the first third. And by the middle section, she probably knows the end. I love that. And yes. She's one of my idols. And, and also everyone would say she's a perfect plotter. Yes. You would say, but that ending, how did you not know? And she says, because it sort of becomes clear or you have different options. And yeah, it's very calming to go, you don't have to do a proper 100 pages. And yeah. then they go over there. <laughs> Also the consequences of that. Uh, and yeah. I feel like a realistic plot is informed by character and you can only really get to know your characters by writing them. There are a couple more things that I want to ask you about Weirdo specifically. One is the number of jobs that Sophie has had mm. that are very funny in and of their own right. So she is a London bus tour guide, okay. but she was a scarer oh, yeah. at what is effectively the London Dungeons. Mm. Is that a job that you that exists and that you've had? I, it's worse, the one I had. I, <laughs> it wasn't one of the scarers because I was too scared. So scared. I have, audi- a- I have auditioned to be a scarer. Oh my God, that audition at, scene. At, is that I have auditioned right? to be a scarer at Madame Tussauds and I didn't get it. I didn't get it and it was really disappointing and it was a time where I had spent all of my money on the travel car to get there. So I didn't know what I was going to do having not, and I knew in the room I hadn't got the job. And a scarer just quickly is someone employed literally to scare the crowd yeah, to come and... Z- zombie is what sort of springs to mind. But yeah, a bit of face makeup, you know, and it's all actors yeah. or I guess actor adjacent, it's an actor adjacent job. I think it pays pretty well. And like, I'm trying to think now... It would have been maybe £11 an hour at the time. Maybe now it's 15 So in terms of an, an actor's part-time job, you know, it's double minimum wage and you get paid for your breaks. Rather than working in an office, there are people who would much prefer. And some people love it, but I found it scary. So the job I worked at, I worked at a place called the London Bridge Experience. So they discovered <laughs> uh, in the old London Bridge, which is right underneath where the current London Bridge is, that there were these pits and then um, they had skulls in them and stuff because, you know, they used to put skulls on the top of the bridges. And so they were going to open a restaurant, but they couldn't get planning permission because it was, you know, <laughs> it was full of skulls. Like yeah, it was a graveyard. Yeah. <laughs> and so instead they opened an experience, which was about the history of London Bridge. And there were scarers at the end because otherwise, why would tourists want to go? But I worked in the history bit where we told them about Boudicca. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it meant I spent time around scarers and they're a fascinating, fascinating breed of people. I mean, you have really used what you've learned there in the novel. 
The other character who I'm obsessed with is the character of Ian in the novel, mm. who is Sophie's long-term boyfriend. Now, he is someone, he's a type that I believe I really recognise. Okay. Where on the surface, he seems enlightened, soft, mm. feminist, likes to read existential philosophy. Yeah. But beneath the surface, mm. quite close to the surface, there's this cauldron of seething intellectual pretension and male rage. <laughs> well, I don't know if you're finding this with men in general, and I think it's happening as well with white people who are doing this to black people, especially since Black Lives Matter. There's an insidious where you've learned the veneer. Yes. And it's almost like we're accidentally gaslighting people. Because I don't think it's necessarily intentionally malevolent it's the same comedy. I'm seeing some much more dangerous people passing because they have the language and you want your monsters to look like monsters. Yes. And actually I think there are scarier monsters who have been given by us. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, this is what you say and this is what you do and this is what you don't do. And they're, when you first meet them, they're getting away with it. And I think it, for the opposite, for women who are around men like that, let's say, all of our spidey senses go off. But what is it that you're really picking up on? Or it, the, the insidiousness of it, I find really fascinating because I think it's terrifying. And they do slip up. And when they do, you go, I knew it. Yes. I knew you didn't actually empathise with women. <laughs> yeah. Does that kind of man exist a lot in comedy? I think what happened... Comedy is where I live. So it's not, I don't think comedy is worse than any other place where there are men. I think sometimes we like to think that, you know, that they're attracted to certain jobs, but I think they're the same in Sainsbury's or other supermarkets. Not <laughs> that Sainsbury's is particularly bad for predators. Um, but um, stand-ups where I live, and what I've seen is that there was uh, on stage and off stage, what we would all be very familiar with from the 80s and 90s, which is that men who saw dating or sex or sexual acts as all a kind of gaming system. Women try and withhold it, men try and get it. And they would talk about that on stage and they would mm. behave like that in their social life. When I started stand-up, people were still doing stand-up about getting women drunk to get them into bed. Mm. And we now would be like... <gasps> like yeah. um, so. But then what I saw is how that has... Those same people or similar kind of people, there's been a mutation, but how they feel about women, the men who see them as gatekeepers for sex that you have to manipulate or press buttons to get what you want that hasn't changed mm. but the language the honesty about it has changed mm. how do you feel now that you're raising a son it's interesting I actually feel really relieved because I don't feel scared about him for the world which is really sexist because actually men are more likely to be assaulted on a night out men are more likely to crimes teenage boys risk-taking there are lots and lots of reasons you should feel worried about the world and actually what you're supposed to feel is, I want to make sure my son doesn't become one of the people that I feared as a teenager. But I guess I haven't gone down that route yet. My first thing was relief. I'm mm. never going to have a teenage girl screaming at me. Yeah. <laughs> because we were a family of all girls and my sisters both had had girls. I just thought I was going to have a girl and replicate our childhood, which was too many women. <laughs> too much of a noxious estrogen cloud yeah, women just can be such bitches yeah. <laughs> yeah women can be so cruel I guess and I guess I just don't know about men that's how I feel about it and I'm having another boy and I know nothing about brothers mm -hmm. and so it all feels like I'm not repeating any toxicity from my family it's all fresh I'll just find out about new toxicities <laughs> yeah and Steve yeah. your husband has sisters as well yes, doesn't yeah, he? so yeah. it'll be an exploratory adventure for both of for you. both of us yeah but he has been a man so I feel like he's at least got some True. insight there has maybe been. that's <laughs> has been maybe that's why I, why I don't worry so much is I feel like 
that's his dad's job. You can make sure he's not a rapist. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you have more insight into, yeah. yeah. You have written and worked so much and so brilliantly in the area of gender. And I read this really fascinating quote that I think you must have given around the time that every single woman in comedy was being asked about being a woman in comedy. And isn't it astonishing that women are funny? Do you remember that era when it was like <clears throat> bridesmaids and everyone yeah. discovered that women could be funny? Yeah, and then they wanted you to sort of explain how and why. Yes, yeah. how long would it last? Yeah. And also like, well, you're an anomaly. You seem to be making money from jokes. <laughs> yeah. 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 But you said this thing that you didn't really identify as a woman that strongly until I started doing stand-up. And people kept telling me I was a woman. Yeah. Tell us more about that, because I found it so interesting. The moment that sticks in my mind was a charity gig, which obviously you do for no money. And the woman, when I arrived, and it was a woman who said it to me, and she said, oh, she was thanking me. She said, thank you so much for being here. It's so important to me that we have a woman and we didn't have any women on the bill. And I thought it was such an odd thing to say because... She wanted me to be grateful that she'd booked me for an unpaid gig that I was doing as a favour to her. So I really thought I was there as a favour. But she saw she was doing quite a gracious thing because she had noticed there was no woman. And the woman as signifier was really alien until I started stand-up. And it kept being, there's a woman on the bill, there's no woman on the bill. Oh, there's two women on the bill tonight. Every time you walked into a room, they noticed. Mm. The, the promoters, the other comedians. I started at a time where it was just sort of becoming there should be a woman on every bill, which meant that it was a, they have, or the woman's pulled out, or so-and-so can't do the gig, can you replace her? And women, when I started, would never gig together. We all knew each other. We all had a network of sort of replacing each other at gigs or talking about things, but we didn't get to gig together because we were so spread out because mm -hmm. then that's how you would have one on every gig. And if there was two of us, then a gig was missing its woman. <laughs> and I didn't feel like being a woman was a type of person until stand-up. I hadn't realised it was so visible. And I guess that's a sign of privilege, actually, that I had felt at school and at university, I had felt that opportunities were open to me, probably because of the kind of things that I wanted to do. I hadn't felt that the world was restrictive because of my gender until stand-up, and it did become such a thing. And then especially then when reviewers talk about it, and these are educated people who are supposedly know the most about my industry and when they would then say there's more women in Edinburgh this year and then talk about that in your review mm. you'd think but we're talking about such different things we are so different from each other but we were treated like a type like a, a flavor of comedy mm. and then what was very frustrating is when you know you do a routine about being on the bus or in Sainsbury's and they would talk about women's comedy because when I was in Sainsbury's, I was a woman. Yes. And when I was on the bus, I was a woman. And I was called a feminist when actually I wasn't actually doing anything feminist apart from being on stage as a woman. And we were all called feminists. And worse, we were called like tolerable feminists. Wow. I remember there was once, I won't name the reviewer, because he's actually you know, a supportive person. And sometimes this is where you see people's blind spots. It was a charity gig. Me and Catherine Ryan were on. Everyone's doing five minutes. And he said, if this is the face of feminism now like how lucky we are, basically meaning they're not shoving it down our throats anymore because we hadn't done any feminism. We mm. had just been there talking mm. about our own lives and it was non-threatening because we were being funny. Then you have people who are more actively agitatingly feminist like Bridget Christie or Deborah Francis White and it became much more exciting because they were actually being feminist mm. rather than women in Sainsbury's. I mean, there is this like overwhelming cultural conditioning 
to see the default as the dominant. So that whole Simone de Beauvoir thing about the othering nature of being seen as the object of the sentence rather than ever the subject. Yeah. And it's always a white man will always, it feels like, be the default. And therefore, simply by being different from yeah. that, you represent something and actually you yeah. just want to be a person. I want to ask you about success, your okay. tour, but yeah. also what success means to you in well, three words or less. Success, I, I thought about it so much going through IVF because yeah. they kept using the word success and success rates. And I had only thought about success in terms of work. And in the way I'd thought about success with work, I was, that's why I became fascinated with sort of dopamine and neurotransmitters, just how fleeting it is. With acting, when you get an acting job, you get a phone call. It would be a phone call if you've got the job. And it is such a rush of because you, it's competitive it's not just like oh you've got a thing you've got it against other people mm-hmm. against the odds quite often you definitely think you haven't you haven't heard from them for a while and by the next day it's disappeared and it's almost the job is almost tarnished because you got it it's so odd the the peaks and troughs and my husband is an actor and watching someone else go through it it's a really cruel industry in how it treats people and how they can't enjoy their downtime because technically they feel unemployed and like they'll never be employed and watching someone else go through that cycle now and so I'd really really been trying with stand-up to rather than having the peaks and troughs when I got my dog I bought a flat it's not a massive flat but I bought a flat I got a mortgage which I never ever thought I'd have And the first thing I did before I got any furniture was get a dog. And that for me was, I never, ever, ever thought, and I got this from jokes. I got this from telling jokes. I got a mortgage. And now, because for the first time I'm not renting, I can have the pets that I've always wanted. And I kept reminding myself, so this is success. This is it. It's not whether have I got news for you, want you on next year. There are all these things around all of our work, actually, that can make you feel replaceable, like you failed, like you're just not good enough, like you're too old now, like you're not very edgy. There are all these ways that our changeable industry isn't very loyal, but there are things that I can do. I mean, which doesn't sound funny. That's not really what no, the show's about. Sure. But when, it's because they kept talking in IVF about success. Yeah. And I thought, why do you get to decide? There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. The anime awards this year were amazing. And I'm still not over all of the amazing live musical performances. Honestly, same. The anime awards may be over, but our discussion is not. If, like us, you're still not over the anime award show and the results, join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. Listening each week to our breakdown of everything that happened at the 2024 anime awards and hear news on the other anime and pop culture that you care about. If you don't want to miss all the post-anime awards discussion, then tune in to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. I feel such a kinship with you and have done for a really long time because... I've had a parasocial relationship with you on social media where I have witnessed you go through 
fertility challenge. And we're going to go on and speak about it because yeah. you've been generous enough to use it as one of your failures. And there's so much more to say. And I suppose I just wanted to thank you for being willing to say it. And also to say now and to preface our whole conversation by saying how sorry I am for what you've been through. There's no question attached to that, but we'll yeah. come on to it yeah. at the end. But thank you to you because I'm coming here to someone who talks about it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, we're going to cry. I no, can I'm tell really already. As well. I, know. <laughs> I don't even have the excuse of being pregnant. Honestly, I gave myself such a pep talk before I left the house of like, I can talk about this, but I'm so hormonal. Like I cry at everything. Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry. I cry at everything anyway. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, it's no, fine. I do we'll as have well, a lovely actually, cleansing session. Yeah, it's hormones. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get on to your first failure. Okay, great. Yeah. Which is acting. I keep nudging your plant. Oh, the plant's yeah. liking it. Okay. <laughs> acting. Yes. I really hope, in my head, this is inspiring for people to hear because, firstly, I was so sure about acting. Mm. I was really, really sure. Like, you know, when you fall in love with a person and you can't believe when that relationship starts showing that it's not working because you're like, but that is the person. Yes. When I was 12, it was 12, me and my sister Cheryl used to, when we were supposed to be in bed, make up plays. And I really knew this was it. And I really knew what it was because... Actually, what I thought at the time was, this is how you escape yourself. This is how you escape your life. You become other people. And I knew it was a job, and it was a lauded job that beautiful people did, <laughs> and then went to, you know, awards ceremonies and things. So it was glamorous. It had everything. And I was so precocious about it. I remember we had a theatre and education come to our assembly, and I was, it would have been, you know, secondary school, but early, maybe 13 or 14, and they said, who here wants to be an actor? And I, like, put up my hand, and I told them my plan, which was... Oxbridge, <laughs> RADA, rep to get good. Because my whole thing, and I remember saying it then, is I don't want to be famous to my 40s. Like, because, you know, your 20s and 30s is really competitive. And, yeah. and I wanted to be like at the Royal Court when I was 70. I remember when I met Carrie at university, so I was 21. Carrie Adloyd. Carrie Adloyd, thank you. <laughs> I remember meeting her at university and saying to her, no, I'm going to peak in my 70s. Like, who wants a life? Because my dad was in a pop band when he was a teenager. And I've seen, like, you don't want fame then. Mm. You want to be working towards it steadily. I love that. Yeah. But, Can I just yeah. interrupt just yeah. briefly? You mentioned your dad there. I wonder how much of that was also related to your mum having you when she was 18. Is yeah. that right? So yeah. were you sort of, on some level, aware of not doing things too early? I, that, that actually made me think like I didn't want children because I'd seen, I mean, I had personally ruined people's lives. Were you told that? it's not explicitly explicitly but every mum has a moment where she loses her shit and goes do you know what I could have had if it wasn't for you she had three children by herself and was working to support us and we were horrible children and I don't mean as in not worthy of love and we were loved but we were feral my mum could not tell us to do anything we were feral <laughs> we were feral especially me and Cheryl Feral Cheryl, they call Feral her, Cheryl, they? yeah, the English teacher now who will kill me. Um, <laughs> but I think much more implicitly than explicitly, I could see how difficult my parents' lives were because they had no money, they had no qualifications, they weren't married when they had me or they got married when they had Cheryl. My dad felt very trapped. My mum had no choices. And your parents split up when you were a child? Yes, yeah. yeah. Which was good because they made each other unhappy. And that's another good thing about... And I know you've covered this before, but there is no failure in relationships. Leaving relationships is a really brilliant thing to do like when they make you unhappy. And showing your children you should be making choices to make yourself happy is a really good thing. But I think parents really struggle. Mm. 
they feel very guilty and I know that children get upset, but it's much better. I know a horrible thing about a family where the parents got divorced but didn't want anyone to know. So the dad stayed in the house. They were separated, but the dad stayed in the house sleeping in the son's bedroom. So that no one, anything that no, that's that's a really terrible message that you're giving to your children, which is you suffer, yes, and you stay because that's what people expect of you. A nice dramatic divorce is much healthier, I think. So, how old were you when your parents divorced? Seven. Okay. Yeah. And your mother was left raising. Your dad went to live in Australia. Eventually, first of all, he was he's a jazz musician, so he lived in London for a bit and in America for a bit. But he really has followed. He plays the saxophone. I mean, I really hate jazz, Elizabeth. I don't know if you think it's really nice. I used to play the trumpet, so I'm like a bit into it. (laughs) Age twelve, you know, you want to be an actor. I want to be an actor and famous in your seventies. And then yes, and and it felt so definite, and it felt so real. And the astonishing thing is, I didn't doubt it, and I didn't doubt it. I left school at 18, decided I wasn't going to go to university. I did try to go to Cambridge. I told them it was just for footlights. And um, also, I, I, I mean, I applied to do philosophy. It was a ridiculous interview. And then I was really shocked not to get in. <laughs> they didn't want me for footlights. And then I started working. And the work I was doing was sort of theatre and education or old people's homes or street theatre. And I was really, really good at applying for jobs and writing letters and going up to people hustling. Mm. I was really good at hustling. And occasionally I would get jobs and placements and little things like holiday camp stuff mm. or like just, and everything felt like it was a journey and in my head I'm writing world autobiography as I go yes then after two years I was singing with Robbie Williams's dad in Nottingham and I was getting paid 100 pounds a week and I was so far over my overdraft because I used to be able to do that I'd had a job in Italy doing theatre and education the cash machines had been letting me take out cash that I didn't have so I'd gone so far over my overdraft that this 100 pounds a week wasn't actually I didn't have any money I was stuck at a hotel for three months and I read a book, which I think was Kate Atkinson's Behind the Scenes at the Museum. A brilliant I book. That. I know, uh, Kate Atkinson is just oh so my fantastic, gosh, isn't stop. she? Yeah, she's incredible. Yeah. We do a whole other podcast yes. just for love for Kate <laughs> yes. Atkinson. It was a seismic change in my life because she made university sound attractive for the first time. And I thought, oh, you get a student loan. So I applied from Nottingham. I didn't even have the train fare to get there. Eventually, my mum had to lend it to me because they wouldn't give me my student loan at Nottingham. I had to go to Sussex to get it. And I wasn't planning to go to university. I was just planning to take the £800 and run. Then when I got there and everyone had been dropped off by their parents and they had stuff like saucepans and duvets and I had nothing. I had some books and some cigarettes and it just felt really romantic. And I, I thought, oh, there's a drama society. I'll do drama for three years and it'll improve my acting, which is how I met Carrie, my best friend. Mm-hmm. Then after the university, I auditioned for drama school for five years and I never got a call back. And I think for anyone else, that would have been a sign of this job isn't for you, as in you're not good at it or you're not. Again, it was just all part of the autobiography. I thought all of this was the journey. The rejection was part of it. I used to make collages out of my rejection letters and decoupage things. It's like uh, the opposite of a manifestation mood board in a way, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> because I thought it would be so funny to look yes, back on. when I, you were on How to Fail. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In my head, I always had that. When they find out, they turn me down. When they're kicking mm. themselves, when, when I get to be one of those people who gives my BAFTA acceptance speech saying, don't give up, kids. Everyone said no to me. No one ever said yes. No one believed in me. And I guess I, I was very comfortable with that narrative. And then stand-up was an accident. There's a sketch show in Little Venice called News Review, and I'd been doing a terrible play about air hostesses with the music of steps with the word changed. <laughs> and we had been going... Oh, she sounds iconic. But... It sounds iconic. I don't want to be too mean. 
Okay. It wasn't. Just okay. trust, trust me, it wasn't. <laughs> and we performed at little theatres near airports for air stewards. Right. And, um, oh God, I'll tell you another time about the guy whose play it was. And... Um, Really, really luckily, the woman who had directed the play, she directed news reviews. She asked me to audition. She thought I was funny, and I said, I'm not funny, I'm deadly serious. I wanted to make political theatre. That's what I'd learned about Sussex, is that you can use entertainment, I've got to sound like David Brent, to change minds. Yeah, like a Trojan horse. <laughs> and Chantelle had just been on Big Brother. Because you have to do impressions. She had just won Big Brother, and I did Chantelle, which was very much my wheelhouse and then I got it and then from that I sort of fell in love with the stand-up for a bit and number one went to see stand-up comedy and I had thought stand-up was improvised I'd only seen probably Billy Connolly and Jack D on TV and Harry Hill Mm. I thought they were making it up I thought they were geniuses but I didn't realize that it was a craft that you put together and then I saw people in Max holding pads and then I decided that as because I was so creatively stifled when I was out of work that I would start doing open mic nights, some with my guitar and some with comedy. And essentially the comedy was acting. It wasn't, it was sort of speeches. It wasn't Mm. stand-up as you would recognise it now. And then accidentally, and it is all accidental, this is why it sort of failed upwards. I was working in New Forest doing reminiscence theatre with old people, which is a hard crowd. It's a really, really worthy job. Yeah but they are tired (laughs) or you're standing in front of the tennis. But um, reminiscence theatre, and then I was coming to London on coaches and doing stand-up at night and I did the Funny Women competition, semi-final. Catherine Ryan had invited lots of agents. I would never have thought to invite agents. Catherine Ryan, everyone wanted to sign her. There was a really long queue. Of course there was, because, you know, she's been a star since she was born. And one of the agents who she had invited is my agent. And then it was like a love story where I got a Facebook message the next day, like, did I want a meeting? And I thought it was Cariad pretending for my confidence I know it's so sweet and essentially I went to meet this agent and she looks after Simon Pegg and Catherine Tate and all of these incredible people and she says what do you want to do and no one had ever asked me and I said I want to play Latitude all of my friends do Latitude and that was my that was my ambition at that point wow yeah and she sort of said have you met this person have you met this person have you been in this room and really what I said to her is I want to be an actor you know and then we did do some acting she still tries to put me up for stuff but I had a real breakthrough in therapy about a year and a half ago. And it was such an obvious thing. It was such an obvious thing. When my therapist said, well, this is all you wanted to be seen. So of course you weren't a very good actor. Like that's why it's stand up. And it's like, it all fits together. It comes from my childhood. It comes from wanting attention. And, and I was a bad actor. I never lost myself. I knew that that was the whole point of acting. I knew that the point was you become someone else, but I never did it. I was Sarah Pascoe with a hat on. <laughs> you want to be seen yes. so deep. Yes, yeah, so deep. And then that's why stand-up became accidentally, without me wanting it, I think if I'd wanted to do it, it would have been much, much harder. But it was always my hobby in the background. It was always mm. like, have a glass of wine, go up there. I loved meeting comics. I loved the creativity of it. I loved the brand newness that you could write something on the bus and then just go and say it or respond to like, you know, the news and stuff. But I never, ever thought, I never valued it. Mm. properly which is probably how I was able to get through the first couple of years without putting any pressure on myself do you still want to be at the height of your fame in your 70s is that part of the plan I would would really like to produce work that's my best yes later it must be hard if you create your best work and no one wants it but I think that would be better than looking back you know like bands first albums and going you would, you would know, and nothing, nothing's as good as... People still want us to play that song. Yeah, Mambo number five. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
still yeah, have to crazy frog. That what one. else did he do? You know, <laughs> your second failure is linked to your first yes. in that when you are a quote unquote successful stand up, you go to Edinburgh. Yes. And you've chosen the Edinburgh Festival, not so much because it's career related, mm. but why? So I went up there first as an actor. Carrie Ed and I both did. And I would honestly describe us as the lowest of the low in if there's an Edinburgh pecking order. But even before, when I was at Sussex, they never sent a play to Edinburgh. Other universities did. Sussex didn't. The drama department didn't have a budget, really. And I think it's something you have to be quite rich to be able to do. The university has to be rich and pay for you, or you have to have money where you mm-hmm. can go and pay for a flat. Because obviously Edinburgh is not a money-making place. Someone's making money, but not the performers, you know. So right. wanted to go when we were at Sussex. We couldn't go. Shortly after we left, maybe a couple of years we did Shakespeare for breakfast, which is 10 in the morning. So I say lowest of the low. See venues, 10 in the morning. It's a devised play. We got £300 for six weeks. So in Edinburgh terms, in terms of making money, it was good. But we lived 15 of us to a three-bedroom house and with one toilet. So it was really... And we had to sort of traipse in there at nine. So we did two shows in a row. We did the Shakespeare devised one where everyone got coffee and croissants. And then we did like a kid's play, which would be like Cinderella or Little Red Riding Hood. <laughs> Our show was so early in the morning and I'm... I was sleeping with a guy. He wasn't my boyfriend, but I definitely liked him. And he was coming to Edinburgh. He'd rung and said he was coming to Edinburgh to see me. And the night he came, I had to go home to go to bed. Like 12 or 1, it wasn't super early, but had to go home. And what happened after I went home is that he slept with my director in this house where there were 15 of us in three bedrooms and then decided to come and see my show the next morning. So I had this bombshell when I woke up that this boy that I liked, that I thought was coming to see me, just because I'd gone home early, had just like got off of someone else, not even someone else, my director, and then sat next to her holding her hand, watching me do my embarrassing 10 in the morning play. And the mistake I made, Elizabeth, is I thought that was my rock bottom. Oh my God, <laughs> I thought, I thought oh, Edinburgh, Edinburgh, you're so cool. It feels like school. You can't get away from people. Everyone knows. Yeah. And that's the problem with being single up there is it's just a cesspit. You know, everyone's up till five in the morning. Everyone's really drunk. Oh, it's a cesspit. It's horrible. And then, you know, you're with someone one week and then they're with someone else the next week. And it's it's fast forwarded. Yeah. Like, oh, it's so gross. It's horrendous. <laughs> it is horrendous. But you went back and it wasn't your rock bottom. Because so you I, went back as a because no, I kept thinking I could yeah. win at it. So yes. it's like the next thing we did. So we did Shades with a Breakfast for a couple of years. And then, then I did a play. I mean, the play itself, there was no problem with the play. And it's when I did So You Think You're Funny which you can only do when you've been doing stand-up for one year. So you have this one opportunity to get to the final of So You Think You're Funny. But I was sharing a bed with a girl because the, the play hadn't, I mean, nothing you're ever sharing happened. sharing a bed? This was an unpaid play. So yeah, and I was sharing a bed with a girl and it's not her fault, but both of us would just try and cop off with people so we would have somewhere else to stay. Like, so that... Yeah. Because it was, it's grim. It's really grim. Did So You Think You're Funny. And then I felt like, okay next year I'll have a pass to go to a bar and then I did a solo show and then I think the trouble was every year I kept going back thinking I could win it so I did a solo show and what I wasn't prepared for was exposure Mm. no one's kind and when I say that obviously the Guardian they don't have meetings like should we be nice (laughs) because people are just trying to be creative and put stuff out there but also members of the public can review you Mm. and I hadn't known at that point yet I actually was quite excited a reviewer had put me as the number one thing to see in Edinburgh. 
right? And he'd said that I was a combination of Sarah Silverman and Stuart Lee. You couldn't hope for a better byline. Yeah. But amazing, amazing. So I'm doing my first ever show in this little hut for 40 people. It was about confidence, actually. It was about ego. And I lost all of my confidence probably second show in and then got these like horrible, eviscerating two-star reviews like saying that I was worse than genocide, you know, because they have to, you know, they, they're just people who have to fill their copy. Yeah. Was this but I, I was sold out. now? That worse new, new, than genocide? Okay. Yeah, and, and also magazines and blog. Okay. And I did stop looking online and it's good because I never, ever looked again. Yeah. I did learn right then that there is nothing there for you. I've had a similar experience with book reviews. Yeah. And it's so much better not looking at anything. And also those ones are still tattooed on my brain. Yeah. That's how I know you can't look. Yeah. You were talking to Yomi about this. We learn from negativity, so unfortunately we cling to the people who say negative things. Yeah. And that doesn't ever go away, and that's why we can't have it, because I think actually it stops you making stuff. Or when you are trying on a blank page to write something, having being heckled yes. by your old criticism yes. is not conducive. It doesn't make you go, oh, I'll show you. It's still there, because part of you believes it, or knows that some people believe that to be true about you. It, it's the antithesis of creative liberation, isn't it? Yeah. You're being berated rather than liberated. Yeah. yeah. Ooh. <laughs> Need that on a t-shirt. Yeah. Your, your beat poet era. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should go to Edinburgh, have a horrible cesspit um, Am I selling it for you? <laughs> uh, it sounds horrendous. If you, like want to, if you wanted to have a breakdown, yeah. go to Edinburgh. So that you don't sleep. Did you actually have a breakdown? I didn't have a breakdown. What kept happening was I kept going thinking this year will be fine. So I thought that first year as a solo stand-up, in some ways, this is where the failure success where the cross-section is interesting because I did sell all my tickets. I didn't lose money because a promoter paid for me because they thought I would have a career. They sort of invest in you early on, which happens for very few people, and it's very fortunate. I did, I think, get industry in. My agent is fantastic, So, but I did some shows to silence, like plays. There was one show where a man went out to get everyone a Sambuca because everyone was having such a shocking time, including myself. And Elizabeth, imagine this. I've just remembered this. There's no exit to the room. It's an attic. So I had to stand behind a curtain, which meant that people would be slagging me off as they left. And I was literally two inches away from them with my fingers in my ears, trying not to listen to them going, oh, well, it was worth a fiver because my ticket, you know, it's when they have two for one days and stuff or, oh, I like her shoes. That's bad. But then, you know, it's a journey. You spend all year building yourself back up again. It's good in a way to start... Uh, I was going to say destroyed my routine this is how unhealthy it was I stayed up all night all night every night and in the morning which it wasn't it was 3pm I would have two Nurofen two Red Bulls two Cronenberg two Fags and that was my routine before my show and then I wouldn't eat till afterwards and I'd have avocado on toast and then you go of course you were unhappy <laughs> like anyway of course you were burnt out of course you were burnt out and that's it what I hadn't realised until I read your failure and how you wrote it to me is that in Edinburgh, you are automatically entered to the prizes. Yeah. So you... Lose. Yes. Lose. So you, or even though you haven't asked to take part in this contest, yeah. you end up feeling like a loser. It, the, the two things you can do to sort of eliminate yourself is you can call your show a work in progress. They are not. So that's why often people go for a month and do a 45-minute work in progress before they go because the year that people feel like they're most likely to win is newcomer. So your first year is the biggest loss, really, because it's the smallest pool. But yeah, it's horrible. That last week, people are broken. And I don't think, again, the audience don't really know. It's not called the Perrier anymore. It's not worse, perhaps, what it once was. But in terms of the next year, you will be in absolutely every room if you get nominated, as in, like, every meeting room. Everyone will say, what's your ideas? What do you want to write? What do you want to do? And it feels like that's the biggest chance you've got. And you think you're fine about it until the nominations come out. 
And they're like, what did I do? Are you going <laughs> yeah. to stop doing Edinburgh now? I have stopped doing Good. Edinburgh. Well, the reason is so, just I'll quickly, just quickly go through the journey. Every year I kept building myself up. And actually my work did get better. My work did get better. I got better. I drank a lot less in Edinburgh. So there were some lessons learned. But the last time I went to Edinburgh, which is the last time, which is the time that I sold all of my tickets before I went up, was my lads, lads, lads show. It meant I didn't have to pay for PR. I didn't have to do a single magazine shoot, a single interview. I didn't have to sell my show. Mm. I sold it all. And I could add a couple of extra shows in if I wanted. And I picked accommodation that was really far outside of Edinburgh. And it had a pizza oven. And I was going to have this healthy time. And this was going to be the one which didn't Mm -hmm. break me. But unfortunately, my ex-boyfriend wrote a show that was about our relationship. And mine was a little bit about a breakup, but being single. But his was much more... And because I had a little bit of a profile, especially in Edinburgh, people knew who he was talking about. And his show then went on to not only be very critically successful, but to win that award. And it was honestly the most absurd thing. I was like, oh, I can't win here. Mm. And we luckily weren't horribly acrimonious. I had to walk past his queue every day to get to my queue. And sometimes, just especially like the third week, I was crying one day. And I just, you know, in Edinburgh, you do cry. It's overwhelming. Someone was trying to take photos with me while I was crying. And I was saying, can't you see I'm crying? (laughs) It's genuinely like Freud has designed all of the things that would be most challenging for your psyche and put them in one place over the course of one month. Yes. But I think it's true for lots of comics. And we punish ourselves thinking that we have to or there's something wrong with us that we're not strong enough to take it. Whereas what I now have just admitted quite zenly is that is not a place I will flourish. Yeah. Oh, Sarah, thank you. That was so enlightening. (laughs) Really? And, And actually, I think will be so helpful for anyone in that world listening to this podcast and I know that there are a lot there are a lot of creatives who who feel like failures constantly because of these kind of setups so thank you yeah it also I know that part of what was going on for you during this time Mm. is your third failure yes okay so third failure is which is pregnancy and it's a in terms of again the cross-section with success the days that you get your period when you really thought it was you were pregnant and that kind of thing and when it happens at work and sometimes with comedy you can have really fun jobs or really big jobs and your personal life cannot come into it so I did have circumstances where things were going well at career but was very undermined by my repeated failure to get pregnant so three relationships I started trying with a boyfriend when I was probably just starting stand-up for about 27, 28. And I'm really glad now, looking back, that I didn't have children with him or with my next long-term relationship. But at the time, that wasn't what it felt like. And, mm-hmm. and, and also, it felt like it was a big part of those relationships fizzling out or you know, becoming a lot less fun. I hear you. Or not having future, those kind of things. But the thing that I did, which I... Again, I don't know if this is a regret. I, I just... I didn't go for investigations. I didn't try and find out why I wasn't getting pregnant. I thought if it was meant to happen, it would happen, which actually means I gave all of the power to something else, which meant it then became very intertwined with worth. Am I good enough to be a parent? Or is the universe saving me from being a parent or saving my, like these possible children from a bad parent? And so I kept reinforcing it wasn't supposed to happen. And, then, and also I thought things like a trade-off. I thought, well... The universe has given you all of this with your work. How dare you say, I want something else as well. I really did think it was a trade-off. And every month 
I always got my hopes up, especially with Steen. Steen, when, before we even kissed, told me he wanted a family. And I, knowing what I'd been through, said, you know, are you open to adoption? He's like, I really want to have biological children. He's Australian Greek. I think he's been asked since he was 18, where's the baby? It was really massive for him. So the, right at the beginning of our relationship was this, and especially because of my age, where I, I must have met him in my late 30s, it wasn't like, we've got five years to go travel, have fun together. It was, you know, we're going to try really soon, if not immediately. Halfway through every month, I always bang on, just like, it's now, I can feel it. And I would look in my diary to look at the stuff that would be impossible because I'd be having this baby. That's not going to work. And then when I wasn't pregnant, I would look again at the same jobs, like, well, at least I can do that now. Like, at least, oh, I will be doing that then. I always thought it was this trade-off and worse. And then because of COVID, like lots of people, I had all my work cancelled in two phone calls, a year worth of work, basically. We were in Finland doing a documentary. I got a phone call from my agent, which was about you know, the first stuff being pulled. And then by the time we landed, it was the rest. So the really good thing was that I'd always had 40 as my cutoff point. Like um, Sheila Hetty in her book, I loved mm. 40 being the line mm. because I needed a point where I just recovered and went, okay, didn't have children. And also, the other reason I think of it as a failure is what is so shit <laughs> when you're going through it is not having a definite answer that you can just react to mm-hmm. and just go, I can cope with definiteness. What I can't cope with is not knowing. I can't cope with maybe or unexplained unexplained miracle accidental and then again the narrative getting to say to this like prospective child guess what I'd given up I was 41 and you get told so many things like relax get drunk go on holiday stop trying so much and it's so much space in your brain so much space in there constantly where you are what could be happening should I have a glass of wine should I have a cheeky cigarette because you know second half of the cycle da, da, da. and then I'd think things like oh, no no because if you don't have a cigarette I love a drunk cigarette if I don't have a cigarette then I definitely won't be pregnant but if I do have it then I will and then I'll be furious with myself and I there's trade-offs constantly yeah. it's like a form of magical thinking it is magical thinking you because there is a lack of explanation and similarly to you I had unexplained fertility and no reason for it and nothing definite. And it's very difficult then not to fill that, especially if you are a storyteller, which you are, with your own stories. And if you are a woman, then generally those stories are going to be extremely self-critical. And then on top of that, if you're a woman who's been socially conditioned to believe that it's a biological imperative to have children Mm. and that people fall off a log and get pregnant, there's all of that. I got so obsessed with, they've got a special name, but people who didn't know they were pregnant so they gave birth. So obsessed with them. them. Yeah. And then you start thinking, should I fall off logs more? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, let me Google falling yes. off a log and whether yeah. that's spiritually oh, aligned God. with getting pregnant. Yeah, Google the, is not your friend. Well, it's not. The forums it's, it's really and, not. It, yeah. It's a really sad place. It's a really sad place. And then, and again, a little bit like the bad reviews, you can't unlearn those things. Never. Other people's sadnesses, other people's traumas, other people's emotional attachments to things or theories on things. There's part of it that's great that it's a collective. They're so common, which is what I talk about in my show. My second half is about having my son. And I want to say it. I'm always so aware of, like, there will be people in my audience. That's why I don't talk about my miscarriage, actually, is because I kept thinking there'll be someone who's having one. There's someone who's having one who's come out to cheer up. And it just made me think, I'm just not going to do it. I'm so sorry. That's okay. I'm so sorry. I've done more to get to this point without welling up. Um, You have. I know your pain. Yeah, and to COVID time, so what was good was... Were you doing IVF? Sorry. That's when we started IVF. That's when you started, okay. And my husband, and I have to say I'm grateful to him because I told him I can't do anymore and he 
he said, please. Like he said, can we give two more years and do this properly with doctors, really try? And two more years, you know, 40 to 42. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, so yeah. your miscarriage predates the IVF? My miscarriage, unfortunately, was why we were waiting to start IVF. Okay. And so you know you have that thing where it's, ring us as soon as you get your period, da 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 This is the cruelty of it in terms of the story because it was a really early miscarriage and I'm not diminishing what I went through, but after, no, after such a long time, never getting pregnant. Oh, well, this was so sorry. Don't, please don't be sorry. But also I wanted to say that just because you then have a child, it doesn't go away. I know. I can tell. Like, and people... I think like lots of people have miscarriages, you just stop talking about it. People stop asking you after two months. Our IVF was put off. It was so shit because I was 38 when we started, which in where I live, I'm on the border of Haringey and Islington. You can have IVF. We could get one round of the NHS. And then because it was moved because of COVID, I was then too old. But Islington, they lay us up to 40, which again is a very unfair thing yeah. because it's just a richer... Thing. So we had to move doctors because it wasn't where you live, it's where your doctor is. So we moved doctors from there to there, you know, 100 metres. Now we're going to have an IVF on the NHS, but then it got cancelled because of COVID. So we, we went private and, um, again, unfortunate. So we're getting the phone calls. Yeah, ring us when you've got your period. And I've had late periods, very cruelly, you know, up to sort of 35, 37 days, that horrible, horrible week. So 32 days, still don't have my period. They said, have you done a pregnancy test? And I said, oh, my period's always late. I don't do a pregnancy test. But 35 days, I did a pregnancy test and it was pregnant. And that's the only time, that is the only time we ever celebrated. I know, yeah. Because after that, it's never ever a celebration ever again. It is such a thief of joy. And then the stupid thing, the reason it feels like a failure is because then I had a pregnancy, again, that word successful. And I'm really lucky that, I didn't have huge health complications with him. He was massive. Like, it, there wasn't, like, worries my pregnancy. But it was horror. Mm. Because I kept thinking he was going to die. I did mm. hundreds of pregnancy tests, and I haven't been able to throw a single one away. And I was thinking yesterday, if there ever is, when there is eventually a climate catastrophe and we're all underwater, I'd be able to make a little raft for my children out of all of the thousands of pregnancy tests I did. I was doing several a day. It was the only way I could reassure myself I was pregnant. Because the progesterone makes you feel pregnant. Yeah. But I'd had that before. Yeah. And then the symptoms had gone, and then I'd started bleeding. So the progesterone, you can't trust it. You can't, it's a horrible thing about IVF. You feel pregnant as soon as you start doing those bloody pessaries. Hundreds of pregnancy tests, and then I got obsessed with the ones which can tell you, like, plus three weeks or how mm. much you are. But then you sort of age out of that. I went for scans all the time, private scans, and as I walked from the room, I would think, well, what if he's died now? Yeah. But you poor thing. You poor well, I think thing. it's so I common. Even, I think it's so common. I I totally thank you so much for talking about it because you've articulated things that I have felt in such a brilliant way and I've never heard anyone else do it. And part of the reason that I have given up my, not given up, but let my fight for a child go is because... I can't bear the thought of another miscarriage. I've had three. Yeah. And I also, I'm too scared to get pregnant because I know I, like you, I would feel terrified every single moment. And like you, I have a drawer full of pregnancy tests yeah. from those. Yeah. And they fade over time. They do, yeah. Which is actually a sadness because yes. like, oh, it's sort of the final fading of something that did exist, but yeah. to all intents and purposes, the world doesn't think it does. 
And how is your pregnancy now with your second well, baby? So number one, I thought it would be easier. I actually felt more neglectful because I've not been able to focus as much anxiety on him. And whenever I do, I feel anxious. I mean, it is anxiety. How do you cope with the anxiety? Like, what's your, how do you I get through know, it? Because nine months is just it's forever. a fuck of a long well, time. The first thing I do in the morning, you know, like people check their phones. I literally just check the fertility app and I see it plus one day and you're just plus oneing towards sort of viability, even though, you know, that's no guarantee of anything. Yeah. And then you're just plussing it and the app tells you, oh, this week they can do this. And eventually at some point it says their lungs are ready to breathe oxygen. And you do, I don't think anything helps you deal with the anxiety. And I know that this is common for women who are in, infertile. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't, I, I really hope there are women listening who are like, no, that didn't happen for me. I loved it. I got so jealous of people who thought a line on a pregnancy test was a baby. Imagine having that much uncomplicated faith in yeah. the world. There's a horrible documentary on Netflix about a woman who is murdered by her husband. And it's horrible because she's been murdered by her husband and she's got three children. She's pregnant with her fourth and she's doing a video for her Facebook. And she says, on the way to the first scan, so excited because at this point you're always thinking, is it one? Is it twins? And I was like, is it fuck? What? Do some people thinking, is it twins? Not, is its heart actually beating? Is it mm. growing? Poor woman, poor woman. But there are some people who literally go, oh shit, I'm having a kid. I totally hear you. It forever changes the way you view the world. And even that thing of, baby announcements on Instagram, yeah. sharing the scan, having baby showers. These are things that I would never, had I ever got yeah. a lasting pregnancy, yeah. I would never have done. Well, I still don't like them. And, no. I've, and I've had a child. People show their bumps in ways that I consider, I get a really odd reaction to it. And for years and years when I just couldn't get pregnant, I had uh, blinkers on actually, I just didn't see stuff. I was really spiky. I was especially spiky on stage. I didn't want people to feel sorry for me. I thought all my audiences were coming to my shows going, but yeah, why is she not having kids? I was so projected out. But now I find there's this gratuitousness about bumps and mm. with the promo for the book, sometimes people want to take full photos of me. It's like, I do, I will never stand there with my hand on my, I will not do that pose. I don't identify as that person. That's not how I feel about this. There's something I wanted to say to you based on an article that you wrote when your friendship book was coming out because it was about people because I've got a leg in both camps, right? I'm yeah. cuspian. I'm an infertile yes. <laughs> woman who then had a child. And yeah. I still don't identify as... I couldn't even do NCT classes. I couldn't be around people who were just mm. who were just pregnant, who thought it was this wonderful, beautiful thing. People say things like, our body's doing these amazing things. And to me, it just feels like terror. It feels like yeah. an accidental terror that I'm not in control of. It was about someone saying about the love right, to you. It's not true. You've never known love. like Yeah, it's not true. There's two things I have my problem with it. Number one, I think it's how parents feel when their kids aren't there. Because when the kids are there, you don't feel that way. <laughs> it's when you're yes. feeling a glass, a glass of wine at a wedding and a night off and you are thinking, no, no, I do like them. Yes. I, think, I think partly it's that. And it happened to me at a wedding. Yeah. That's what's no, 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 it's at a wedding. That's what I was imagining. So I've, I've only oh been out God. once since I had my son, okay. which was Emma Forrest's book launch. And it was lovely. I still wouldn't have said that to anyone and it isn't how I feel about him actually. I think you have an emotional spectrum and I had used up all my emotions before. I was 40 when I had him. Like, I had had all the emotions. It's like, but I also think it's people trying to convince themselves because it's so fucking horrible. Yes. <laughs> it's drudgery. That, it's and, I think, and I think they say it out loud and they say it out loud to other parents and it's like, why do you need to add that onto the end of every sentence? My son put like sweet potato that I just steamed him into my hair and then they'll say... Oh, but it's amazing, isn't it? It's like, no, we could just say the shit thing. He did a shit, he's a, he's a horrible boy. You can say that. I think they're trying to convince themselves when they say that out loud. I think the language is too simplified. Mm. It's too complex. No sentence covers it. Love is not the word. Oh, I don't know. It's not all of it. So I thought, why would you sit there? I've never known love like it. 
you're telling yourself that. You're telling yourself you made the right life decision or it's okay or you can cope and you can go back. It's drudgery. I love you. <laughs> love is the appropriate yes, word okay, yes. for how I feel <laughs> yeah. about you. I am so grateful for your existence in this world. Well, thank you. I I'm, feel the same about you. Oh, but Sarah, <laughs> I, like, I cannot thank you enough. I just can't thank you enough. Like, thank you for... I really am denied about. Words. I really am denied about whether to put it on because I obviously from your work and I'm aware what you've been through as well. And then I and I just thought maybe for people who come to you because you talk about it because of what they're also going through. With my first son, put up a post on Instagram to say that I felt really odd. You know, I get sent pictures of myself where I'm clearly pregnant. I wasn't saying even I was pregnant on stage. I felt so conflicted about it, and I felt so conflicted about sharing it with others. And I got contacted by women who had had pregnancies but who had remained in the place before, that it doesn't go mm. away, it doesn't wipe them away, and that there are resources and the people run podcasts that are just about parenting after loss or parenting mm. after trying for years to conceive. Well, there's trying for years, I think, is the phrase that they use. There's a whole other side of infertility, which is it doesn't go away. What yes. you've been through for all those years doesn't go away. And then you feel like a failure that you haven't gone, now I'm an earth mummy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now yeah. I can sit at weddings and go, mm, never know love like it. <laughs> yeah. Well, no one will ever know love like the love I've experienced with Sarah Pascoe. <laughs> During this last hour and a bit of chat, I'm in awe of you. Thank you so, okay, so much so for much, coming Elizabeth. on Her to Fail. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.